You're listening to Reframe Your Life, and this is episode 121, and Patty and I are here today with Michelle Parisi. Parisi. I wanted to say it Italian, but I just went flat on that, so you can... Uh, you can correct me there, but I'm uh, really looking forward no, to talking right. to you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I will get out Duolingo later and brush up on Italian. Um, Michelle is an award-winning journalist, writer, and performer. She's worked for the CBC for more than two decades in everything from children's television to music programming and documentary making as well as at the helm of many national radio programs. Michelle is the daughter of Italian immigrants. She was born and raised in Toronto, where she lives now. Yes. Hi. I get to read about a little bit about the book, and I took this directly from the back of the book because I really thought after reading the book, this did a pretty great job. Uh, it's, a, it's pretty punchy, and I hope Michelle agrees. Alone, a love story is a memoir of falling in love, the fallout of infidelity, and everything messy in between. And it's also the inspiration behind the hit CBC podcast by the same name. The church wedding, the new house, a beautiful baby, Michelle was sold a dream and bought into it. But one day, nine years in, she wakes up in an empty bed and the husband isn't there. Then he drops the bomb. He was having an affair with a woman at work. Adrift and on the edge of 40, fueled by grief, booze, and one-night stands, Michelle battles the monster she calls loneliness, juggling being a part-time parent and part-time partier. Though dangerously close to rock bottom, Michelle takes a chance on love again with a dashing but complicated man, the man with the white shirt. Michelle, an expert in emotional forensics, dives into the wreckage with candor and humor, uncovering a story about falling in and out of love, divorce, single parenthood, and the messy world of dating. What she finds beneath it all is life and the courage to face it alone. Welcome, Michelle Parisi. Thanks for having me. It's really looking forward to it. And Sandy always leads us off. I'm going to get into the dating and breakup stories with you and really, (laughs) really savor that later. But we always start off in the same place because we want to anchor the podcast in time. That's what we call the COVID question. You want to take us there, Sandy? Yeah. So I was thinking about this and um, how it relates to your story. And I was thinking about how difficult these times are for everyone. And we've all heard that divorce lawyers are swamped. In fact, I just heard this week that with the second wave that there's another uptick in people Mm -hmm. contacting divorce lawyers. And I was reading your story and I was thinking about all of your uh, stories about dating and and what would that be like during COVID these the bar scene and what you know how that would impact people and I I just was wondering with that for you how COVID's been for you I don't know what your love life is like right now and you don't have to tell us but what have you observed or seen around you during these times for people who are in that uh, place in their life where they're looking to hook up or meet people or find their version of the man in the white shirt? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't actually thought about those uh, specific aspects of it, like the dating part. What I've been struck by over this past seven months or so is like how the themes in the book uh, are so much of the themes that people have been dealing with, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. So, 
you know, life being turned upside down overnight, basically, and, and feelings of isolation, feelings of loneliness. Um, so many of my single friends live alone. And when we were in lockdown in Toronto and elsewhere in Canada, um, I really made sure to be connecting with those people because I really remember the feelings I had of being alone or going, you know, a week or two weeks without ever hugging somebody, yes. like not having physical contact. And so that's something that now, you know, there were people who experienced that because of the pandemic for months and months and months and months. Um, you know, there was definitely no dating <laughs> happening, I don't think, at the beginning of the pandemic anyway. And um, yeah, so it, it's funny, all those sort of themes were really parallel because the specifics of like why someone is lonely or um, feeling isolated, it doesn't matter. Like the the feelings are always the same. Um, Good point. Yeah, I'm not dating because I have a partner now. So, <laughs> so luckily, we've been having a wonderful grand time cooped up in a very tiny apartment together <laughs> <laughs> with my teenager. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, you know, I can see why we hear these reports of of people going to bars and going places, even when it wasn't safe or, yeah. you know, wanting that, that need to have human connection. And I, I totally sympathize and empathize with people that are on their own right now. So thank you for that answer. I, when I was reading your book, I thought a lot about endings and we recently interviewed, um, Samra Zafar. I don't know if you know who she is, but she, um, she wrote, she the wrote wife. Yeah, the good about, wife is her book. Oh, okay. About, uh, domestic abuse, and she told us that on average, it takes a woman about seven tries or attempts to leave a relation, an abusive relationship. And I was thinking about your ending your marriage and how how gray that was like it wasn't like you know there was the bomb and then it was over it was you know and obviously you had a child so you weren't just going to walk out of each other's lives but I guess my question is um, from your perspective what makes a good ending in a relationship hmm. well I mean in some ways it was very quick um you know, there was the bomb I found out and I phoned the real estate agent and said yeah. the house is going up for sale. And, um, you know, I knew that in that second, there was no question for me um, that, I, that I would leave or that we would break up or that we were no longer married from that yes. is really what it was. I just was like, oh, I'm not, we're not married anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, people in my family and, and fr like friends were, are you, what are you doing? It's so fast. Like, are you sure? Like you're already selling the house and how can you know and, already? Yeah. And, you know, and my, I remember my dad saying like, um, you know, sometimes he wasn't telling me to stay. He was just saying like, sometimes marriages can uh, overcome infidelity. And I said, yeah, I, I know that. And I believe that. Um, but he also didn't want to be married anymore. 
you know, right. even at the right. heart of it, he was already struggling with that. And I could deal with one <laughs> or the other, yeah. but both, yeah. it's like, I, I just knew for me, mm-hmm. uh, it was over. I didn't want to be with somebody who wasn't really sure they wanted to be with me. And, uh, you know, you, you so took that's my ending. That. Yeah, that was, and that Mm. ending, that ending was coming, right? And I wonder, and I love this question about what makes good endings because I'm experienced with them, sadly, but it's that the knowing that it's coming is very different than having it foisted on you, right? It wasn't one shock for you. It wasn't one thing. It was because the bomb was driving home. Weren't you driving home from sort of Christmas dinner? And he said, I'm not sure I want to be married anymore. Then there was the dropping that was a little bombs yeah the little that was all within it was all within a short time right a short time so for me it it, i didn't know it was coming um what i thought you know all the little bombs were leading to him having you know feelings of being trapped or not sure if he wanted to be married anymore and all that and i was willing to work through that and it was hard but that was a very short period i mean we were together for 12 like 11 and a half excellent years. And the last six months was like a garbage fire. And um, so, but really all of that happened right at the end of the end. It was kind of, in the book, I call it the Blitzkrieg, right? It's like tiny little bombs he was dropping, preparing the almost, and then the big one. And Um, I I really identified with that. That was like Mm -hmm. the for me, that was an early messiness that provoked for me this knowledge that I trusted you as the writer to then show us the true messiness later. Because those little seeds, I, maybe it's my nose for it, but I smelled the seeds as you dropped them where you said, oh, he mentioned a woman at work. And then, uh, you know, something else happened. Then the green umbrella and then the things that were coming. And first of all, every woman identified with you, but we also had a keen sense of not to be suspicious, but to be perhaps wary. And by, from that moment where I heard the seeds dropped, I identified with you and I saw you were going to be a really honest narrator that showed us exactly how hard this is. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, cause in, in real life, I, did not see the seeds. <laughs> like to we me, they we were, yeah. they were just, um, you know, bumps on the marriage road or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just didn't. Uh, I just didn't. <laughs> I didn't know until. Of course until, not. Until I knew. <laughs> it's that, really weird. That, that makes way. it. That makes it every woman's story who's been through a breakup or a shock or a surprise. And I was really grateful at how. And men, later, actually, I will 100%. say, mm-hmm. I, I've had tons of letters Have and you? messages from men. Oh yeah, I mean, people who feel um, betrayed or disappointed or just upended in their lives, like it, it hasn't actually been. Um, in particular, like only jilted 40-year-old women that have messaged me. It's been Fantastic. everybody, different yeah. ages and different uh, gender and even different sexual orientation. Like it, it's, it, yeah, on some level, I mean, I think if you maybe just look at it superficially, it could, I'm not suggesting you just did that, <laughs> but yeah. if one did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if one looked at it superficially or just, yes. you know, book base the book on the cover uh you might think yeah. um this is a, a you know a extremely heterosexual heteronormative story about a 40 year old white woman mm-hmm. which of course it is but it i think that but it's uh, not the thing about the way i write is that it's actually about all the things underneath 
right very specifics yeah you know for me um and i I say it it almost you know i I say it writer to writer i say it woman to woman i say it you know former married woman to married women i say it to everyone breakups are the worst and Mm -hmm. those those resulting from infidelity and um may be the worst of the worst and um, are ruminating, Definitely are worrying, yeah. the anxiety, the self-flagellation, the way you beat yourself up, you know, the way your ego takes the hit, the sense of betrayal, it's a different kind of pain and it doesn't make any sense to us. And for me, it was um, powerful that you went on to write about all of it. And as a memoirist myself, and I do mention my own divorce in my memoir, Loving Large, but I don't go into the agony of it. What I do is say that I didn't have time to cope with the agony because I was busy mm. saving my child. But that was my way out of fully including the details in my memoir. But how did you decide to share and with what intention? And mm-hmm. I know that you said late in the book that you actually spoke to the husband about it and you thank he and Bertie and the acknowledgements, you know, for being okay with it. But how did you decide the extent to share what I call the ruminating, the, you know, feeling it and then not feeling it, the feeling the loss, the wanting to be with him, knowing that you shouldn't want to be with him, the true mm-hmm. mix up and roller coaster of what the aftermath feels like? So for me, the reason people connect with the material so much and like the whole purpose of art <laughs> for me is like, you have to have that authenticity piece. And so the only way for it to be authentic is it is for it to be ugly as much as it is beautiful. And um, I, I just didn't, I wasn't interested in writing something that shied away from those ugly parts. I just, it's really not my, I also didn't really, you know, know what I was writing until I started writing it. And then a lot of things that I chose to put in and things I chose not to, you know, put in was very intentional. Um, I thought very carefully about how I would tell the story of my own experience rather than, you know, try to tell someone else's story. Yes. Um, Which is why, you know, I never try and guess at the motivation of my um, ex-husband or, you know, or anyone, it's more my, the impact of people's actions rather than telling their story. And so that was intentional for sure. But the messy stuff, I mean, that's what it's about. (laughs) Like that's like the actual stuff of life. And I wrote it, it's mostly written in an active voice also. So Mm -hmm. it's not a retrospective um, memoir. It's not something I wrote uh, 10 years after it happened with a looking back um, mind. I wrote it as it was happening. Yes. And then I edited it, you know, a little bit later. And then I put it together and then I refined it. But I always retained that active voice or I retained the emotion of how I was feeling in the moments that the action happened even the ones that were extremely embarrassing or I yes. didn't feel at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to stay true to the material as I wrote it because yeah. otherwise it's a reflection and we like really change. Sure we do. Sometimes we can anyway, I would, if it was, if I wrote it retrospectively, I think I would 
embellish more or I don't know, take out these things that are embarrassing. So this way it was, yeah. I think the moment, the momentum in your, when you're in the breakup period, the early breakup period, the momentum for me really comes when you start to discuss the dating space and which is, and I wrote in my own notes, like you, you can't describe the dating space to someone who's about to find themselves single. You can't really even uh, describe it to your coupled friends. It is, no. um, it's a state of mind, but it's a space that you're forced to inhabit. It's also uh, can be, can be temporary. And the way that you get your mind around being in that space is almost the wishful thinking of what can come later. And I loved the way you just said, here's where I am. I am getting through this. And you really honestly shared the fumbles and the foibles and the things that maybe later you might've done differently, but you didn't do it with any regret. And I love that you just without conscience or awareness of the reader said, Here's what I did. And I also, I won't give away a whole lot for the people who maybe haven't read it yet. I don't think anyone hasn't read this yet because it's fabulous. But oh. I, I think um, the way you didn't sugarcoat it, I thanked you for. And hmm. sometimes I wished you had sugarcoated it a little bit because quite honestly, it was a flashback for me. You can't mm-hmm. warn somebody of what the dating space is like. So how, what would you say now? Like, how do you, when people interview you, for example, do you, do you try to soften the blow? Do you say, Hey, dating is tough. How, how do you feel about the dating space now that you spent so much time in it? Oh, I hate it. It was awful. Like, I, I mean, that's always my initial feeling. Like, I feel like, uh, you know, it's like one long bad drug trip, right? Like, <laughs> If I think back to like, you know, doing small, soft drugs when I was like 20 or something and, and, you know, and it's like, sometimes it was fun, but mostly that was terrible. And, um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, sure. There were some enlightening parts. There were some exciting, fun parts. There were a lot of things I (laughs) never saw or did before, you know, so to (laughs) be 37 years old at the time of my marriage ending, and then just like in this bizarre other world, because I had only ever had like four partners, one right after another. To me, sex, especially sex, was about being in love with somebody. That was the only way I had ever experienced it. So to suddenly, you know, be in a, in a extremely different scenario where it's like hookup culture is yes. a real thing. Anyone who says it isn't is wrong. Um, it's not just 20 year olds. It's not just a millennial thing. Yeah. Hookup culture yep. is pervasive, especially mm-hmm. in urban centers yes. um, where there's a massive pool of single people. There's no need really for anyone to be in a relationship unless they, if they don't want to. And so Hmm. it's just unending uh, sort of like, you know, all these things, this like ghosting and, and um, texting, all these things that were completely new to me. um, Mm -hmm. Because I had always been in a relationship. I never even went on dates. You know, I was never even single in my twenties and I was not a wild person by any stretch of the imagination. So I basically had my 
the proverbial 20s, like in my <laughs> late 30s, early 40s. <laughs> right, right. I made it, up for lost time. It, it's it was so moment. enlightening to yeah. me because I are, yes, shocking, surprising, because last time I dated was in the 70s. So there, were, there weren't cell phones. So even, yeah. even when I was, um, my husband and I were going out, I, I would talk to him on Wednesday night because that was sort of our plan and then see him on the weekend, like, and nothing in between because we... But that's how my husband and I were too in the, <laughs> at the beginning of the 2000s. I mean, we didn't even get right. a cell phone until our child was born. Right. right? Like, yeah. and then we had one cell phone and it was like whoever had the baby or the car had the cell phone. We shared a cell phone. That was in 2007. Right. So, I mean... Yeah. Even between us, it wasn't like, even for me, and I was born in the seventies. Right. So, so the switch is, you know, it, like technology and dating is just yeah. like the change oh, yeah. so much. And it's yeah. not even if you're, um, it's not just about either uh, dating apps and stuff like that. Cause I didn't even hardly do that. Like even yeah. people you meet in the real world, your relationship quote unquote, like all your dealings are through, you know, texting. Right. And the Twitter and guy, the Twitter guy was like, oh my gosh, now you have somebody sure. on social media talking <laughs> about you. I was like, talking about right. all of you. Yeah. I mean, it you is a, it's a lesson in socially inappropriate behavior, but so is social media. But I mean, I love that you called it one long drug trip, right? I mean, it's, yes. that's exactly what it is. So it's, uh, it's not a place anyone wants to spend much time, but it is a necessary evil, right? Yeah. I mean, I think some people like it. Usually my friends that like it are men. Um, and everyone who hates dating are women. Um, but I mean, I'm sure there are, like those are generalized and anecdotal mm -hmm. statements I just made, but, um, and I think, and I talk about it a bit in the book too, is that like the reason for that is it's more, it's dangerous for women. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, and a lot I, of yeah. single friends of mine and women I know just stopped dating like they just didn't they were just like yeah. my boyfriend is netflix now and yes. and that's you know women in their 30s like amazing women who have like careers and they're good looking or at least they're fine you know what i mean like i don't know like just yeah. women with a lot to offer just yeah. basically saying i do crafts and and yeah. watch netflix now and yeah. someone like me who i wasn't willing well, I had lots of issues, obviously, of abandonment and all kinds of issues. Um, but also, I'm just, one of the things I'm not afraid to, obviously, talk about is that, like, I like having sex, and I wanted to have sex. Like, I wanted intimacy. Yeah. Yes. And the only way to do that was to, like, roll the dice every time or be mm. celibate, right? So yeah. it was either your choice is celibate, celibacy or polyamory. That's mm -hmm. basically what it's like to date right now. Yeah. And it sucks. And you took yeah. the reader through all of those options. You know, I, I thought it was such a, it was such a, not a wide variety, but you hit one of kind of everything that is going on out there. But you also didn't shy away from the fact that, or I think one or two times where you said to yourself, holy crap, like I'm 
going home with a man I just met, or I'm, I'm in an enclosed space where I don't know if my cell phone works and am I safe? Those moments where, and I'm probably making those up, but where, or maybe they're mine, but you know, you, you catch yourself saying, wait a second, I might not be safe here. And it's true that we do get swept away in unsafe situations. And as you just said, dating requires a roll of the dice that sometimes is too great a risk in a lot of ways. But in fact, I would say to that, because people say, well, like you shouldn't get yourself into those situations. And it's like, you don't know that that a situation is unsafe. You don't. Right. Because the situation is safe and good, right? Until Until it's it's not. not. And so the implication that like women should know better or whatever, Mm -hmm. or should like just walk away from a, like, the thing is you could be on a second or third date with a man that is wonderful and smart and intelligent and handsome. And you're like, this is awesome. And then you go to their house and then you're like, yes, now we're making out. Now you're like, yeah, we're having sex. And it's like, you're having sex. And you up until that moment are like, this is the greatest. I'm super into this. This guy's hot. And then he suddenly like, Yep. does something that you don't want him to do or yeah. doesn't listen to what you're saying. And, yes. you know, so how would you avoid that situation? The right. only way to avoid it is to be celibate and stay home and watch Netflix, marry Netflix, right. you know, like that exactly. seems to be what people are saying because you cannot tell who is a good guy and who is a bad guy. You know, you can't, you cannot and right. that is why I hate dating. <laughs> <laughs> right? Fair enough. And Most of them enough. were not bad yeah. guys, though. Right. <laughs> you know, Can there was a lot ask- of, like, boring guys. Mostly. Yeah, and boring boring is welcome sometimes, but they maybe also <laughs> aren't who you're hoping to meet dating because you don't spend time with them later. But can we ask you to read a little bit for us from Alone? Sure. Also, the memoir is written in little vignettes for anyone who doesn't yes. know. I'm, I'm more of a short story writer, so it's not like a traditional narrative. Um, so this vignette is called Love as Torture. And then right after that, I'll read He's Come Undone. I grew up thinking love was torture. Love was passion. Love was drama. I watched my parents fight in spectacular telenovela fashion. I saw my aunt and uncle throw plates and punches while my little cousins and I hid under the table. These couples loved each other fiercely. I'd sit at the top of the basement stairs long after I should have been asleep, watching them dance close and call each other darling. A spark in their eye, an affectionate pinch of a bum, a laugh like a teenage girl. So that's what love's always been to me, wild and sweeping changing from intense anger to soft care at any moment. Of course, my parents and most of my aunts and uncles all got divorced eventually, but by then it was too late. I'd sponged it all up. It's part of my very blood. Love is infuriating, but worth every fight. Which brings me here, to a place where love is only real if it can rage like a bonfire and also comfort like a fireplace. It's both at once the pain, and the warmth. It's why my heart is always cranked to maximum. He's come undone. I just threw a vintage ashtray across the room in his general direction. It was made of glass, and when it hit the wall, it sprayed everywhere, 
millions of tiny pieces all over the room. Some pieces even made it to the kitchen somehow, skidding across the floor. I'm howling, crying, begging him to stop twisting words. We've been like this before, but it's been worse these past few months, these months where something's happened to him. And I don't know who he is anymore. It feels like he's a ghost in this house, a ghost that stares infinitely at the TV. It makes me sad and then angry and then angrier. The more confused and angry I become, the more it leads us here to a place where I throw a glass object clean across a room. Suddenly there's a tiny voice. Guys, the voice says, it's Bertie. She always calls us guys, which is usually the cutest, but right now it's 1 a.m. and she's four years old and in her pajamas in the kitchen, possibly standing right on top of tiny pieces of glass. The husband springs up like a savior, shouting at me, look what you've done, and scoops her up, cooing to her gently. He whisks her upstairs, comforting her like world's best dad, leaving me here, world's worst mom, I guess. I can only guess. I don't know why we're fighting like this or what's happening. I'm so unhappy. I miss him and us, and I hate him and us. And I feel trapped, but not in a way that makes me want to break free. No, just in a way that makes me want to understand and fix a trapping we can somehow transcend together. So I sweep up the glass. I sweep and sweep. He comes back. He holds the dustpan. He explains the properties of the glass to me by way of explaining how something so small could shatter into so many pieces. And then we sit on the kitchen floor and talk. We stare into each other. We stare at each other across this floor that only a few years earlier we put in ourselves when I was pregnant, tearing it up to reveal layer upon layer of linoleum in every pattern imaginable, decades piled on top of one another, an excavation of another family's life. On this night, like all others before it, neither of us storms off. Instead, we talk. We talk and talk until we're calm again, until one of us laughs, until one person reaches out to the other and we're in each other's arms. Until one of us says, sorry, I'll do better. And the other answers, no, no, I'm sorry, I'll do better. And so, like every single argument we've ever had, this one turns out okay. Exhausted, we go to bed together. We tangle our bodies up purposefully and kiss goodnight. We fall asleep pledging, things will be different. But they weren't. Da, da, da. <laughs> that is uh, that is Michelle Parisi reading from Alone, a Love Story. Thank you. So I find that the unvarnished truth is the gold of memoir, but it's also about what you include and what you don't include. So I was moved by the intrigue of you mention your illness, for example. Then later on, you mention. It, you just barely mention it. So I could tell you were choosing to not include certain things. And I wondered if that feels real to you. Was that the intention of that? If that feels true for you when you wrote the book? Yeah, I mean, I feel the, the illness, I mean, anything to do with my MS diagnosis and figuring out, you know, living with MS, it's pretty much there. I don't really have more thoughts on that one to be honest. Um, 
I'm not dying, right? So it's 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 a manageable thing, and and also it's funny. I mean, some people want more of that and really you know ask about that, but that wasn't the trauma of my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the trauma, yes. for whatever reason, um, uh, was my husband lying to me, <laughs> and yes. my whole reality being broken by that. Um, so, so that's that. Other things, th there's only really a few things that were extremely intentional that I did not put in. I never, as I said earlier, I, I never wanted to guess at the husband's motivation. Um, I didn't want to get into his pathology um, or too much into any details about the affair itself. Um, yes because that's his story. And, and in fact, it's their story and not mine in some ways. So, and also the, the woman, um, she's barely in it at all. She's not really in it at all. She's kind of a, a, a little ghost, right? There's the umbrella. And then there's the time that I go to her apartment and or I, <laughs> I go to the intersection where I know she lives and go to every single condo until I find her name on the, you know, what's it called? On the directory. Um, but other than that, I also don't guess at her motivations, at her pathology, at her, who is she? Or it's, that's not interesting to me. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in her at all. Uh, but and especially not heard to my story. So, so those two things were very intentional. I wanted mm. this to be. Um, you're with me on the like, when I go down the well of grief and yes. alcohol and you know, poor decisions. <laughs> those are mine, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the affair was just a was the catalyst. It was the yes. The, the thing that pushed me forward. So, yeah, it come it comes to mind. One of the unique things about your book, and I know, again, this is this is something you love. You speak to regularly about the book was birthed, and then a podcast became an opportunity as well. And I wondered, was the same thing true? And please speak to us a little bit about the uniqueness and the mm -hmm. cool factor about <laughs> a memoir that became a podcast because it translates beautifully doesn't especially the vignette style but also that you kept it your story which meant you were the host you were the narrator you were the woman this happened to it wasn't about postulating and hypothesizing about what other people were thinking no so did that truth telling and you sticking to your part of the story um did that inspire you to see this translated to a podcast so I basically wrote this book over the course of two years or so, a few years. And then I had, a, I got a book deal. Um, and this was uh, five years ago. And then there were some issues where, you know, there were some things I didn't want to compromise on. And I didn't feel like I had to. Um, so I turned the book deal down, which sounds crazy. And <laughs> I didn't have an agent at the time and I didn't have the podcast or anything. It was just, you know, a series of events that got me to the point where I, with knowing nothing about the publishing world, um, 
decided not to take this deal, um, which seems crazy, but anyway. And um, not crazy, sorry, I shouldn't use the crazy word. Um, and, then, and then I just sat on the material for a couple of years and just kept adding to it. And, um, and then I thought, wait a second, I'm a radio producer. Like, this is my yeah. life. Why don't I um, adapt it? And I pitched, I came up with an idea that I could make this, like, to me, I, I really thought it was a movie for your ears. That was my whole vision. I wanted to make a movie, um, but I don't know how to make a movie. So I know how to make radio. And so that's what I pitched to them. And they accepted one season, so the first 10 episodes. So then I had to take what was basically part one of this book and make a narrative arc that made sense over 10 episodes. And um, that's what I did. And it was a big, huge hit. And naturally, I performed it because it's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm good at <laughs> I'm, I sound good on the radio. I'm I, a right performer, so made sense. And um, yeah, and then I had to pitch season two <laughs> and season three. So anyone who thinks that I got this podcast because I work at CPC, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really not how it worked. It was a huge hit with a bajillion downloads and awards, and I still had to pitch every season. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so basically the, the three parts of the book, which was already in three parts, became the three seasons of the podcast. However, narrative storytelling in audio or, you know, is a different thing. So there were a lot of changes. And the modular um, style of my writing, those little vignettes, made it really easy to just move everything around in whatever combination myself and the other producer I worked with felt like doing like we just had walls of post-it notes just like (laughs) moving everything around all the time so some of the order is quite different um Mm. the beginning of the book is pretty much exactly the same and then after Mm. that there's a whole bunch of things that are out of order and then there's a bunch of things we had to cut because it's totally different the podcast Mm, (laughs) not totally different it's a totally different thing sure Um, yeah Mm -hmm. however my voice is my voice is my voice so like the way I write is very clearly my, I have a strong voice, writer's voice, and that voice is the same as the podcast voice. We didn't have to change it too much. Mm-hmm. A lot of taking <laughs> big words out and <laughs> things that were too lofty. Because there are things you would never say out loud. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so for me to say them, re- then you're just an audio book. Like I didn't want to be an audio book, right? Yeah. So it had to I think still make sense. That's really interesting to me because people would make presumptions. And I think people do make presumptions that audio content that is based on a book would be a recitation of the content of the book. And in fact, you've no. tried to stray, you've strayed away from that. Yeah. Cause then really that is just, that's what an audio book is, which is fine. You can do a dramatic recitation of a book and that's great. Um, sure. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make something that felt like you were watching, uh, you know, a serialized TV show that mm-hmm. you wanted to binge. And so that's why my podcast was the first podcast on CBC to be yeah. um, batch released. Oh, uh, I was going to ask you that. 10 yeah. at once. Um, yeah, because 
they're only about 20 to 30 minutes long, not even 20, 25 minutes. And I really like to like end every single thing with a little <laughs> cliffhanger kind of, or a little punch in the gut or something. And so I wanted it to be like, as soon as you finish listening to one episode, you want to hear the next one. And, and in fact, I was spot on. I don't know how I knew that or what. I have no idea, you guys, but it, I was right. People were the next day, like, and I was a nobody, like, who am I? And like, there would be people in Australia or wherever, all over the world. And like one and a half days later saying on Twitter, they binged already the entire thing. Wow. Complete strangers all over the world. And, um, and I still get messages today where people are like, I've listened to the entire series three times already or 10 times yeah. already or whatever. It's like people, uh, I mean. Now, do you get feedback I, from people who have listened to the series and read the book? Um, yes, I have. But the I think like podcast people, listeners are, that audience is very, like they've written me a lot more than, book people. Mm, mm-hmm. mm, um, interesting, right? Yeah. I think that my book has sold, but I actually have no idea yet. <laughs> right. Well, we wanted right. to talk to you about that because Patty yeah. has been in a similar place with her book and you, your mm-hmm. book dropped during COVID and I'm, mm-hmm. um, what was, what was that experience and how has that impacted your, um, distribution and your, uh, book sales, promotion, everything around a book launch? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's my first book, so um, definitely I would have gone to festivals or whatever, yes. been doing things in person, and even the book launch itself, you know, mm-hmm. um, friends and, and uh, like I have, there's a collective of media, women called Media Girlfriends, and the, like we had this whole party planned, um and of course that didn't happen um right so that was a bit it's like disappointing but in the scale of things of what's happening in the world yeah right uh, it yes. was very exactly right marginal like you'll never hear me complaining yeah. um and I, I was lucky to still you know be invited to many like literary festivals that that did things online online um, stuff yeah yeah so and the, so that was great yeah. but of course it would have been nice too fly around the country and go to all these right. places and, and talk sure. to other writers and be like a featured author at a festival. That's pretty exciting. I mean, I still was, yeah. but it's all been like this, like in this exact spot. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. In I know. my apartment. I keep, <laughs> I keep saying I've done all that cool stuff, but I've done it in this chair and that doesn't seem yeah. right. I can still hold my <laughs> book up, but it's not the same thing. But you know, it, it made, it makes everyone ask me. So, you know, the next one will be different folks are saying. So it, it, the lead in question I had for you was first, could something come next in the podcast or is the podcast in the can? And then what book next? Like, could you left enough unknowns at the end of this book that I wondered, would she write a memoir of the years since? I mean, we kind of want to know what happened with relationships, which I'm not, I'm not going to give away those cliffhangers, but we want to know what happened, right? People invest in you, not just as a book author, but people also had access to your voice in these multiple episodes. Mm-hmm. So that, that engenders a relationship with folks that is, I think, um, even more 
complicated than the one we have with writers. People know the sound of your voice in every literal way is what I'm saying. What, what could come next? Yeah. So the podcast, there won't be more of the podcast. I mean, that was just it. That was, uh, yeah. it, it was what it was. I had a very specific vision for it and I executed that mm-hmm. and, and that'll be that. I mean, I do have yeah. a day job, <laughs> which is neither <laughs> was that podcast or this book. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I, 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 there's no more of the podcast, like Alone with Love Story, yeah. the podcast, is that, that's it. it it's its yeah. body of work. Um, and then in terms of uh, a sequel memoir, no, I don't think so. I mean, I've been, I've spent the past year writing, I've written a whole other book um, that is not a memoir. I didn't even, I'll be true, oh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that I didn't even want it to say that it was a memoir on the cover of the book. I because I feel like, um, not because I have anything against memoirs, I love them, nope. but I there's some like I have a specific style of writing. Uh, apparently, says everyone. Um, yes, you do. That is very mixed. It's not mixed media, but it's like mixed genre or whatever. It's a narrative. It's also flashes forward. It flashes back. There's a a letter all of a sudden. There's a poem. Then there's like you know, it's not a quote unquote typical narrative and it's quite literary also. So in a way, if it didn't say memoir and you didn't know, it could be a novel, like Mm. I think. And, and um, in any case, I spent the last year writing Mm. a book that is, you know, same thing, like a bunch of short stories that I call mostly true, but not Uh. really. So it's probably, you know, fiction, reality fiction, fictional reality. Is that a thing? I'm not sure. I don't know, but I think you could invent it if you want. Yeah. I don't it's really... highly creative nonfiction. There we highly go. creative. Yeah. I've never been, one thing I'll say is I'm never interested in what other people are doing in the sense of like, as compared to what I'm doing. I'm very right. interested in what other people are doing, <laughs> but I mean, and I'm not interested in like labels or what things are called like memoir, not yeah. memoir or whatever, like that you do a podcast first and then you do a book is too confusing for the world for some reason, but the <laughs> book was first, you know what I mean? These kinds of things, yes. like there seems to be in life, this like order of operations. And if we've learned anything from my book and my life, is that you can do all the things in the correct order and then you still get bitten in the ass. Yes. And so you may as well do it in whatever order you want to do it in. And that's basically what I did where I was like, okay, I don't like the way this book deal is going. So I'm not going to have a book. And then it make a movie for your ears. And then people are yeah. like, well, have you heard this podcast? Have you heard this podcast? And then they would suggest like podcasts of 40 year old jilted ladies from other places. And I'm like, what? That has nothing to do with my podcast. <laughs> like what right. I want. And yes. they were like, well, didn't you listen to this? Didn't you? And I said, no, I don't want to listen to those. I'll listen to them after. Right. Sure. Like if, yeah. if I want to, but I don't, I have already my own ideas in my head. This is what I want to do. I want to make this yeah. thing that is extremely rich with sound and music and dramatic mm-hmm. and pauses and use silences for effect. Like I want to make right. my own thing. And yeah. same with the book. I want right. to have one whole page that suddenly is a 
a script from a yep. and, <laughs> a and play you did. Yeah. in the middle of a story that was in the middle already of another story, you know, right. and, and right. that's okay. I, I think we can trust readers and trust audiences they'll, they'll figure to go it with out. us to, yeah. to be intelligent to that's yeah. all right. Like you said that you worked, you're working on a now book. I know that you went on after not doing your first book deal and you did agent because I know who your agent is and you did publish because we also share that. So <laughs> you did that. But what, what about this book? Are you going to publish this one? You're going to work on it. Are you pitching it? Where's what's its state right now? Oh, um, I think I plan? will. By the end of the year, I'll send it to my agent and then mm -hmm. just see what she says. She's Fantastic. the best. She knows what's going on. I don't know. She's the best. Yeah. Um, like, Love I don't know. Maybe nobody will want to publish it. Then so. <laughs> who knows what I'll do. We'll see. Yeah. You know. Okay. But either way, I write. Like, it just, I write all the you time. You write anyway. So. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. I'm always writing. I'm always making something. I'm drawing. I'm sewing. I'm playing guitar like I'm like <laughs> I'm always building something it's like mm, this is really just cool. kind of how it is with me and I don't Part worry about yeah. I don't have the end game it's not important to me the end game right now I'm like mm. I'm writing this book and I'm writing it as if I'm writing it to publish it next year right I don't know I don't know if that'll happen but that's the way that I um approach it I take well, we hope you very we hope you do publish yes. it. We yes. we look forward we to seeing what it becomes in the world. That is for yeah. sure. So we have we have like the random closing questions that we usually subject all of our victims to. I mean, all of our guests mm -hmm. to. <laughs> do, do you want to hit some of those, Sandy? We love book recommendations. So, and I'm really curious to hear from you. What is what is your favorite memoir? And now that I know that you didn't even want memoir on the title of your book, it doesn't have to be a memoir. <laughs> Maybe yeah. just what is a book that you recommend more than any other book to people? Oh, okay. Um, the book I recommend the most probably, or one of the ones is um, Americana by mm -hmm. Chimamanda and Gozia DJ. Yep. And I love her. I love all three books. Her, I love her, her three too. novels. Um, yeah. So I would recommend them all. But, mm -hmm. um, and I think that she appeals to me in, uh, Oh, for so many reasons, but um, like yep. it's beautiful for writing, but it's also very raw and very mm -hmm. authentic feeling. And the reason is she, like me, not that I'm comparing myself to her, but I read somewhere where she was like, oh, she's a total eavesdropper who like writes people's dialogue down, which is what I do. Like that's how I can be so specific about the dialogue and the book and everything is because I write everything down right after. Um, oh, that's so interesting. That's, and, a, that's and, a great tip. I love that. Oh, yeah. This I have piles of books. I mean, the thing is, when I was editing the book, too, myself, I would fact check myself, right? And, like, go back cool. and check my notes and yeah. check calendars and be sure. Um, because it's still obviously only my side of things or my memory. But because I wrote it so soon after a mm -hmm. thing happening, it was very close to the moment. And, and so it can be much more... Yeah, like accurate, <laughs> as mm -hmm. accurate as a memoir can be. Um, and, and I read that she does that too. And so like she said, all of her stories, although her, no her books are novels, her books are novels, so her three novels are novels, they're actually based on real things and right. real things she's experienced, real things she knows other people experience. So I love her and can't 
yeah, say enough her. about her. Mm. And what are you reading right now? Are you reading her right now or rereading her? But what, what's on your bedside table? Oh, oh, what did I just finish reading? Well, actually, I just finished reading a memoir. <laughs> Yay! Which was uh, Krista Couture. Who is, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to guess. We, we, inter- we interviewed Krista um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and dropped the podcast. We love that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I just read How, How to Lose, How to lose Everything. Mm-hmm. And um, she had years ago lent me her favorite memoir, which became my favorite memoir, to answer your question, Sandy, 10 minutes later in the typical Michelle way, uh, which was Joan Didion's like, The Year of Magical Thinking. Anything else? That's great. <laughs> so where can our listeners connect with you? Mm-hmm. Um, probably the easiest is uh, I made myself a website. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's michelle-parisi.com. <laughs> okay. So, and everything is there. There's video and audio and art and musical collaborations I've done and Great. Um, whatever. All kinds of stuff. Stuff about the book. And that's, Good. Well, thank that's you very so much. We, we are a calm crew on this recording. It's much more uproarious if you get us in the morning. So I'm glad, yes. we, were <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we were able to do this with everything that you've got going on and homeschooling and teenagers and how do parents mm-hmm. do this time? I don't know how anybody's doing this time, but I, we were uh, thrilled that you, were, you found a way to squeeze in so we could talk to you. So we can get your yes, book thank the, you. the list of awesome can lit that we're trying to promote. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to both of you. Absolutely. Really fun. It, was great to, it was great to meet you, Michelle. Yes. Hi, it's Sandy here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. If you've been enjoying our episodes and the interviews that we've been bringing you each week, we'd appreciate it if you would help us get the word out about our podcast. The best way is to share it with a friend and leave a review for us where you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about my work, you can find me at sandyreynolds.com. I have a special PDF file available with my newsletter for anyone who struggled with people pleasing. And if you're interested in finding out more about the writing process and crafting your own memoir, check out pattymhall.com. And thank you for listening.